This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Welcome to another edition of America Changed Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Pegues. And in this past week, another January 6th committee hearing. The select committee deciding to subpoena Donald J. Trump. Now, listen, we knew that that was probably going to be in the cards at the end of this committee investigation, and we're close to the end. The committee still has to write its final report, but it's been pretty obvious where this thing has been going, and it's been building up to the top of the pyramid. According to the select committee, it was Donald J. Trump who decided planning as early as the summer before the election that he was going to decide, oh, the election was stolen. So the committee highlighted that because, again, this was what we think is going to be the final January 6th select committee hearing. So this was like a trial, even though it's not a trial, but it's a trial in the political sense. They are presenting evidence because this committee, with some Republicans on it, Liz Cheney's on it, Adam Kinzinger. They're not far-right Republicans, but they're Republicans. And they are presenting evidence because they believe that what happened on January 6th should be talked about. It should be part of the historical record. Here's Liz Cheney during the select committee hearing this past week. The vast weight of evidence presented so far has shown us that the central cause of January 6th was one man, Donald Trump whom many others followed. So Congresswoman Liz Cheney has a lot of writing on the results of the select committee work. She has a lot writing on whether the American people believe what she and the other committee members are saying. Here's another Republican on that committee, Adam Kinzinger. Very shortly uh, after the election, the Trump campaign recognized that they had likely lost the election and they informed Donald Trump of that fact. 
Even before the networks called the race for President Biden on November 7th, his chances of pulling out a victory were virtually non-existent, and President Trump knew it. And so, as I said at the top, the committee has decided to issue a subpoena to former President Trump. They want his testimony. The question is, are they going to get his testimony? Joining us now is Jonathan Weiner, former special envoy for Libya at the State Department and host of the podcast unconventional threat. Okay, so Jonathan, I love having you on because I know you've done your research long before most people were talking about the intricacies of January 6th. You had sort of connected the dots. You wrote that article that we've talked about in the past so when you watch this past week's January 6th select committee, some of this might have already sounded familiar to you? It did. But what's marvelous and what's really important about where we are is for a long time, people pretended that Trump's effort to overturn the election and the insurrection were somehow separate things. And of course, they were all part fundamentally of one giant effort by Donald Trump to hold on to office in violation of all kinds of laws and the Constitution, aided and abetted by a very large number of other people, and opposed by a lot of people in the government, which included a number of uh, his own political appointees. But he had aiders and abettors, and he had opponents, and the system held just barely. But the insurrection and uh, the effort to overturn the election, or you could call it a coup effort, were absolutely intertwined and integrated, and uh, the insurrection would not have happened uh, without Donald Trump calling it into being. And that was what was so clear in today's hearing. Yeah, they, the committee members, you know, they they tried to connect the dots. And, you know, what stood out to me is when they started talking about how how premeditated this was. This it was premeditated. It was premeditated because Donald Trump was talking about perhaps questioning the results of the election as early as July. They had a plan in place that you declare victory. And having declared victory, you then hold on for dear life, regardless of what the facts are. And that was the plan. And that plan was undertaken, initiated before the election took place, and then triggered after the election took place as early as election night, when Donald Trump said, let's stop the counting, and I, I won. And so, he, he, it wasn't like he waited for things to play out. He knew what, he, what his job was, and his job was to stay in office no matter what, ignore the people's will, if that's what it took and hold on and, and call for an insurrection if necessary, the stopping of the counting of the electoral votes as mandated by the Constitution. Absolutely astonishing. And it happened in the United States of America in 2020. And of course, this committee, this was its final hearing. At least that's what they're saying right now. Who knows what might happen down the road, especially if Donald J. Trump resists this subpoena, what do you think is going to happen? Well, there's a real question as to whether the Department of Justice is going to indict Donald Trump um, for his many crimes. 
And there are a lot of crimes. I wrote a long article on the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection listing many of the crimes. And they're really almost too numerous to count, uh, but they boil down to an effort to carry out a coup, again, involving lots and lots of people. So which of these are the Department of Justice going to prosecute? The committee has now laid out enough facts to provide a framework uh, for the Department of Justice to, to take those facts, the many, many dots you've talked about, and connect those dots to make out a variety of federal offenses. Are they going to bring in uh, criminal cases, a case or cases against Donald Trump, against those who worked with him in an effort to overturn the election and in effect overthrow uh, the Biden administration, prevent uh, Joe Biden from taking office? We don't know yet, but they're certainly acting like they intend to do that. And there was a very interesting article this week published by Franklin Foyer in The Atlantic, written by Franklin Foyer, in which he says he thinks Merrick Garland's going to indict, is going to authorize an indictment. And he's somebody who's known Garland for a long time. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, you know, as our listeners, I'm assuming known by now, I, I cover the Department of Justice and I've asked the Attorney General about whether he would charge, indict a former president. And last time I asked him is, is the clip that most media sort of replays because he got really animated. And Merrick Garland doesn't typically get animated. Never did. <laughs> He's a pretty cool, calm character. And so he says, nobody's above the law. And I said, even a former president? He said, no one is above the law. He's on the record saying that numerous times. I, I think he really means it. And I, I think we sort of see that playing out with the, the classified documents case. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Um, when I wrote my article last January, I was pretty surprised at how little activity there seemed to be from the Department of Justice. They were going after the lower depths insurrectionists, you know, the guys from the countryside who came and converged on the Capitol. But they weren't at that point putting before the grand jury people who were um, political operatives like Roger Stone or Steve Bannon uh, or people who uh, were elected officials uh, like members of Congress or any number of, uh, of the people who was pretty clear, worked with Donald Trump in connection with trying to overturn the election. And they weren't doing that then. There's lots of information out there now showing that they've been doing it these last months, and they're clearly doing it for a purpose. And the law is the law, which is to say there, there are certain laws that have existed for a long time about things that are illegal. It is illegal, for example, to plot and carry out an insurrection. There's a particular federal crime that prohibits that. Uh, it's illegal to interfere with official proceedings of the U.S. government. There's, there's a federal criminal law that says that. And there are a number of other uh, laws applicable to the effort to overturn the election and the insurrection. So you take the facts based on documents and the facts based on testimony and the facts based on video, and you apply that to the law and you do that without fear, without favor, in the most neutral and impartial way. And there are going to be certain consequences. 
And I think the Department of Justice is at this point uh, getting uh, getting into a situation where it has to act because the facts that have come out are so devastating in terms of providing predicates uh, that show the violation of all of these laws. The more you hear, and um, I'm just speaking in generalities here about the average person who's who's watching these hearings or maybe getting their clips of news online. This was a coup attempt. Oh, yes. If this happened in any other country, the State Department would be calling it a coup attempt. It was a coup attempt. There's no question. It was a coup attempt. It's Initiated by and organized by the then President of the United States. We've never had anything like that in our entire history as a country. It's still hard to believe, Jonathan. Now, I, I find myself listening to some of the allegations in these committee hearings, and I'm just thinking, you know, what kind of person would say, yeah, they're armed, but they're not here to hurt me? I mean, who says something like that? I mean, that's crazy. They're not here to hurt me. Most presidents, Republican or Democrat, would hear about these accounts of people armed in trees and carrying weapons and would say, shut it down, shut it down, get out the National Guard, they're attacking the Capitol. But according to witness accounts, uh, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson, the, the, the star witness of the committee, former President Trump was just watching. TV. He denies that he was just watching TV at the time as people were climbing the walls of the Capitol, beating up police officers. I mean, most presidents would have said, shut it down, send all reinforcements, send everybody. This is awful. Imagine for a moment that instead of their, this mob attacking the Capitol, they were attacking the Pentagon. We'd call that a terrorist attack. Imagine they were uh, attacking the FBI. We call it a terrorist attack. Imagine they were attacking um, the Justice Department building or the Treasury Department building. Imagine if they were attacking the White House. Jonathan, listen, I am African American. I am a black man. And I was watching that at the Capitol thinking, imagine if these people were black. <laughs> what do you think would happen? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. But that's one of the things that they were planning for. And I wrote about that in, um, in my first piece, uh, and I think the second one. But in any case, they were planning for the possibility that they could create a situation by delaying the certification of the votes where you had so many people upset who voted for Biden as well as who voted uh, for Trump that you'd wind up with competing militias competing demonstrators, competing people in the streets. And then the president as commander in chief could use his emergency powers under the Insurrection Act to call out the military and essentially put us in a state of martial law. We came very close to a situation where there could have been martial law imposed on the entire country with Washington, D.C. under lockdown and the president's election lawyer, uh, Sidney Powell, um, uh, grabbing all the voting machines and essentially taking them offline and putting them under her control and undertaking an investigation of her own 
There was an executive order that was drafted that would have allowed that and putting the whole country into not only martial law, but um, economic, social, political chaos. And this, this man was prepared to do that. And these things were discussed. They didn't, weren't carried out. What was carried out was the effort to prevent the certification of the vote. But these other ideas were discussed, and there's now a, a records that show this. It's not something uh, I'm making up out of thin air. There are documents that show they were discussing this and considering these options. Yeah, I mean, anyone who, you know, if you're, if you're following the Oath Keepers trial, Stuart Rhodes, who is this ringleader with the, the patch on his eye, you know, he led this band of this militia. And that's what they were waiting for, this signal. The Insurrection Act from the president. Isn't that what they were waiting for? They were waiting for a signal for the president to essentially act as a citizen's militia as if the Constitution uh, authorized the president to call out citizens' militias, as opposed to governmental bodies, to um, uh, lock, load, and potentially fire. Now, we, we were really close, way closer than people have recognized to the risk of civil war becoming a reality. And the, the, the Jackson Square use of tear gas and calling out the military that happened over the summer, in a way, was a wake-up call and helped protect us. Because General Milley, who uh, participated in that, was dressed down by the other members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff after that event and um, confessed um, to them that he felt he'd been politically used and had erred in allowing that to happen, that it would not happen again. So the Pentagon became very locked down and self-protective about the risk of being politically abused. The problem is that if people had come out who were Biden supporters and attacked government buildings in the way the insurrectionists attacked the Capitol, that would have justified under our law the use of the Insurrection Act, which is authorized for the purpose of protecting federal buildings. And so you could have had the military protecting federal buildings and this country in a situation of real civil conflict. And that's the kind of thing that was being set into motion by what Mr. Trump was doing in that period of time. Terrifying, disgraceful, unprecedented. And the idea that someone should have impunity for doing that is un-American. No one should have impunity for setting into motion something like that and doing so willfully, intentionally, deliberately over a period of days, weeks, and months. Frankly, I had a sinking feeling before the election about how President Trump would react. You know, I over the years, I you know, I'd been in regular, fairly regular contact with Michael Cohen, who people forget. He testified before Congress, and he was asked, and I forget what the question was exactly, but his response was, "President Trump will not go quietly. It's just not in his nature." Yes, as a matter of fact. The Central Intelligence Agency's most prominent psychological profiler, the person who essentially invented this for foreign dictators, Jerry Post, who died from COVID prior to the insurrection, appeared on the podcast that I was co-hosting, Unconventional Threat, and quoted the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. Uh, he will not go gentle into that good night. 
he will rage and rage against the dying of the light. And he said, Trump will not go gently. He will rage and rage. And he warned of exactly what was to come. The Trump spokesman released a statement after the committee hearings, and it's mostly talking about a nation in decline, inflation out of control, the crime rate is at an all-time high, the crisis at our southern border, you know, right-wing talking points that typically you hear on conservative media. But then in the last paragraph, sort of responds, kind of, sort of responds to the subpoena request or to the subpoena. They are simply bitter, power hungry, and desperate. President Trump will not be intimidated by their meritless rhetoric or un American actions. <laughs> anyway, the Trump endorsed candidates, the statement goes on to say, will sweep the midterms and America first leadership and solutions will be restored. Make America great again. Oh, my goodness. So anyway, that's their statement. Also, Benny Thompson of the select committee, he was asked questions about the subpoena, of course, which is the, the talk of the town right now. I mean, that's that's fair to say. That's the big news, I think, coming out of this hearing. Uh, something that was overshadowed, by the way, is on that same day, Mark Short was at the D.C. federal courthouse. Mark Short, of course, the chief of staff for former Vice President Mike Pence. Was he, you know, before the grand jury? But that was just sort of interesting that we we saw him. And as far as Benny Thompson, he says no subpoena for former Vice President Mike Pence. So they don't want to talk to Mike Pence. They just want the big guy. They want Donald Trump. That's who they want to talk to. I would love to see him testify. I think that there's an awful lot of questions he'd have to answer for. He's, of course, testified in many, many, many depositions over the years. He's been sued hundreds of times. And he's good at not answering questions, even when he's supposed to be answering them. But in this situation, I'm reminded a lot at this point of a very famous cartoon from Doonesbury, which came out during Watergate and which Gary Trudeau redid in a reference just a few years back. And in it, the um, radio show host, uh, Mark Slackmeyer, is asked what he thinks about the testimony way back when during Watergate of the then former Attorney General of the United States, John Mitchell. And he interrupts the testimony to say, guilty, 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 guilty. And there was a recap of that about statements made by Donald Trump in a relatively recent Doonesbury cartoon. And there's so much information out there that I'm not sure there's really anything Donald Trump can say that's going to do anything to address the fundamental facts that have already been established. It is interesting that a number of the people around him pled the fifth. And I note that the committee, once again, talked about criminal referrals to the Department of Justice. I'm guessing that's going to be the next step. But as you pointed out, you know, the Department of Justice is already investigating. 
they're already looking at the former president's actions leading up to that day on that day. You know, so if there is a criminal referral, which is this uh, request from Congress or from a committee to look into to investigate a matter. We've seen it in other cases. But it just seems like, yeah, that's where this is going. Let, let me ask you this, Jonathan. I was thinking this during our special coverage on television with Nora O'Donnell. This was the closing argument by this select committee. And I was just thinking, yeah, I mean, to what, to 60 something percent of the country, sounds like they have a pretty strong case. But you're going to have 25, 30 percent of the country who, no matter what that select committee says, they are still with former President Trump. I saw a guy at the car wash. And he had this Make America Great hat on, his red hat, and he was wearing it with pride. And that's the guy who I'm sure he doesn't even watch those committee hearings. And if he does, he doesn't believe it. And that's a problem, don't you think? Because, and I didn't say this on TV either, but can you think of another incident in this country's history where five officers, as a result of that incident, died, where it's not universally condemned. I mean, here you have people saying, ah, it wasn't an insurrection. Ah, it wasn't violence. And these aren't just anybody. These are members of Congress saying that. People running for office saying that. Ron Johnson in Wisconsin a senator saying that it is incredible to me. Five officers died as a result of that incident. More than a hundred injured. Are you kidding me? I still can't get over that, Jonathan. We're in a dangerous place when Timothy McVeigh, during the Clinton administration, blew up the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. It was after there had been months of attacks on the Justice Department and on federal law enforcement by right-wing uh, members of Congress and others. And after the horror of the destruction of that building, which killed a lot of innocent children, federal workers, nobody was about to defend Timothy McVeigh, and nobody did. And the country actually came together to recognize that the attacks on government needed to stop. And they stopped for a while. But the problem is that there are a lot of people who are very angry, and they're willing to be angry with the government, and they love Trump's defiance. His defiance is one of the things they love most about him. It's a defiance of everything that they fear, everything that they hate, everything that's different from them. And they're going to go with him precisely because of his defiance. And uh, the hell with anybody on the other side including federal law enforcement. It's uh, very disturbing. It's very ugly. But it's one of the facts about the way this country is divided right now. Except in that video showing a bipartisan effort 
Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, John Thune, trying to figure out, okay, how do we get this situation under control? They were huddling. And, you know, I'm an old softy. I like seeing stuff like that. People working together to solve a problem. Call me crazy. They're doing it right now, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. They're doing yeah, it right now yeah. on the Electoral Count Reform Act, where Republicans in the Senate, including Mitch McConnell, are joining with Democrats in the Senate to try and make it harder for any future candidate or his supporters to overturn an election and to interfere with the actual votes of the voters of this country and the actual electoral voting uh, that follows from the popular vote. It's a very significant effort. It's likely going to pass over the next couple of months within this Congress after the elections. And it's fairly important after what happened on January 6th. Yeah, it, it would prevent uh, Joe Biden uh, from asking Kamala Harris to do what Trump asked Pence to do, which is to throw out the votes uh, for the other guy. It would prevent any president from doing that with a vice president and limit the vice president's role to purely uh, ceremonial function, which is the way it should be given that the vice president could often be in a situation where their immediate fate was going to be determined by whether they followed the law or didn't. So it, it, it gets rid of a number of loopholes. That's one of the most dramatic of them. And it would really help us um, have a sure, more sure process uh, that the popular vote in every state is respected and turned into electoral counts that are then uh, counted. And that we don't wind up with dueling certificates by state legislatures and state governors and contested elections in which politicians select who's going to be president rather than the voters. Yeah. There's nothing better, I think, than bipartisan legislation. And as you point out, that's it. That is it. Jonathan Weiner, thanks for your time. You're welcome. We've got to rebuild confidence in the system and do everything we can to bring people together. I'm looking ahead to the 2024 presidential election because I'm fascinated by what is going to happen on the GOP side. So many questions. So let's talk about potential candidates with CBS News political director Finn Gomez. Finn, thanks for being with us. You know, I wanted to get your expertise yeah. Not to talk about the midterms. Everybody right now is talking about the midterms, which under a month away, I want to look ahead. I want to look ahead to the 2024 presidential election, but specifically the potential Republican candidates in the field. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about former President Trump perhaps putting his hat in the ring, but let's look beyond former President Trump even though he will weigh heavily over whoever is the GOP nominee. Maybe it'll be former President Trump. I don't know. So let me ask you right now, who appear to be some of the potential front runners in 2024's GOP? This is my wheelhouse. I really uh, enjoy talking about presidential politics, Jeff. Um, as you said, uh, former President Donald Trump has a major hold still on the Republican Party. Uh, you've seen it throughout the primary cycle. 
where his back candidates have won uh, extensively throughout the primaries and, and, and they're now uh, facing Democrats in the, in the general election. And you still see he has this hold on the Republican Party. He, he campaigns for them. He's in, he's in battleground states like Nevada and Arizona this past weekend. In recent polls, he still has like 49, 50% of uh, the support of the Republican Party. Um, however, it's not what it once was. If you look at some of these polls, even from a little, a few months back, his popularity was much higher. There's room for others. And I think um, you have multiple investigations occurring. You have multiple uh, hurdles for the former president trying to run again. Uh, there are others who are sort of waiting in the wings and some of them who aren't waiting in the wings who are really you know, starting foundations, laying out plans, laying out the framework for potential runs. And you see that with some of their visits to uh, presidential primary early states, like Ron DeSantis is someone that will probably be topping the list of potential uh, rivals for the former president. Of course, he's the Florida governor. He is the only one who registers in double digits right now. When you look at the uh, early polls on the potential 2024 Republican field, um, he's had a lot of attention lately. Uh, obviously, um, because of with the hurricane that happened just a little while ago, um, he got a lot of airtime, if you will. It was also sort of a leadership test, like how well he would do um, with this storm, with this um, uh, the situation that, that previous governors in Florida have faced. Um, and so he also has been uh, had some backlash when he sent undocumented migrants to um, Martha's Vineyard, which was seen as a political stunt job. But it also endeared him to the conservative base of the Republican Party. He thought that that maneuver uh, helped focus the race overall back on uh, illegal immigration, which is which is a red meat issue for most of these base voters. But uh, not only him, I think you also just have to look at like uh, the Virginia governor, Glenn Youngkin, who has a very strong team. He's got a lot of money. He's going to these early states. Uh, and he's also in 2021, he was this, uh, he embodied the comeback of the Republican Party following the, the ugliness of 2020 and January 6th. He won in a state that he was supposed to lose, and he won because he joined Never Trumpers and the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. But, you know, with the MAGA base and the Never Trumpers, he won in Virginia. Uh, and also, of course, Mike Pence, the former vice president, the, you know, Trump's former vice president, uh, people like Kellyanne Conway tell me he best embodies the Trump-Pence policies of that administration. But of course, he has a hurdle after the January 6th component. But he also has close ties to the evangelical vote, which is very important in states like Iowa and South Carolina. And there's also a lot of other people that can round up like the top 10. But those are, I think, the key ones to, to look out for. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, all the big names. I think Youngkin might surprise people who aren't from this region of America, the mid-Atlantic region. However, he is a formidable candidate, and he's certainly proven that in the state of Virginia. You, you bring up Kellyanne Conway. I'm wondering, let's just say there's a hypothetical matchup between former President Trump, former Vice President Mike Pence. Who would she choose to work for. What do you think? That's a tough one. I mean, honestly, like she came from Pence world. The whole reason she got connected uh, to Trump was because of, of Mike Pence. Um, and, but at the same time, she's someone who the former president listens to. I mean, they talk, um, you know, a couple times a week. 
they're very close. I think it'd be a hard call for her. Uh, but right now, at this moment, I mean, who's 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 got the best odds of capturing the nomination? And I would bet that she would choose Donald Trump just because of where he stands within the party and the money he has and the stature he has still uh, within that party. Yeah, but he, yeah. he's got a mountain of legal problems. Oh, yeah. You know, he I don't know of a man in America who is facing more legal problems than the former president. I mean, if you look at the case in Georgia, and we're not going to get into these cases right now, but if you look at the case in Georgia, Fulton County, Georgia, you look at the January 6th investigation, oh, yeah. you look at the classified die and on and civil cases that he's facing. I mean, he, the Trump organization facing um, allegations of wrongdoing. So it's just a mountain of problems for him. I don't know how he wakes up every day, frankly, because if I were in that situation, I'd be rolled up in a ball somewhere because you have all these people coming after you, but you still think that he could be a viable candidate in 2024, despite all these legal problems. Uh, yes, I do. I do think you're absolutely right. Absolutely right, Jeff, when you bring up this point, because I even talked to uh, sources close to Donald Trump who say they expect Donald Trump to be indicted. They expect that. And even with that, even with that, that political storm he faces, the, the mountain to climb that you, did you reference, which he does, will he be a viable candidate? He's, he still can be, even with an indictment, uh, potential indictment, uh, hovering over his, his head and, and also his, you know, the path to another, um, run at 1600 Pennsylvania. So yes. Um, but again, you hit on another point, Jeff. These other Republicans are vying in the wings. Um, reaching out to donors, reaching out to huge uh, operatives in, in these crucial states, these early primary states, presidential primary states, and you know they're making they're they're setting up a path just in case he falters, and they'll be waiting. And they will be waiting. What about this past week? Uh, as the the past week started, there there was a lot of talk about former CIA director, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo perhaps tossing his hat into the ring. It was yeah. a false alarm, but yeah. still his name is out there. We know that, you know, frankly, he's in great shape. He's lost a lot of weight. He's gotten healthy. 60 pounds, yeah. He's 60 pounds, which is incredible. I wish I could do that some days. But so he's, he's getting fit and ready for something. Do you think he declares himself to be a candidate for president in 2024 at some point? You know, it, it, the signs clearly indicate to me anyway that, yes, I think that's a very strong possibility. He's, he said as much. You know, he's raising money. He's got he's got a, uh, a pack. I mean, he's helping candidates. I mean, he dropped a ton of weight, as you mentioned. These are all indicators that he's positioned himself for a run. He has a lane. It's foreign policy, the foreign policy prowess that he has as former Secretary of State and former CIA director. Um, and he best embodies the Trump policies, of course, um, on foreign policy. And he's been aggressive on Putin. If you recall, Trump early on gave Putin praise for his early uh his early ventures into Ukraine. Pompeo was was hitting him. So hitting Putin, hitting the authoritarian Russian leader. So he has a lane that is the foreign policy lane, and no one really else on the you know, potential GOP field that we discuss really has it. Um, the only other person who can embody best the Trump foreign policy 
positions are, of course, the former president. Finn, this is your wheelhouse. <laughs> this has been a really interesting discussion. I wish we had more time, but we will. It's still early. We still have to get through the midterms. But then after that, all bets are off as the horse race begins. Absolutely. In the GOP, perhaps, you know, I think perhaps no matter what happens with the Democrats, the GOP might be the more interesting races to watch uh, as there is this battle for the soul of the party. Finn Gomez, CBS News political director. Thanks for your time. It's an honor, Jeff. Great to be on. David Marchick is the dean of the Co-God School of Business at American University and the author of the new book, The Peaceful Transfer of Power, an Oral History of America's Presidential Transition. The operative word, David, peaceful. <laughs> exactly. That's the way it's supposed to be, right? Well, for 234 years now, 233 years, we've had a peaceful transfer of power as Ken Burns, the great historian and documentarian, was quoted in my book, he said, presidents have come and go. They've not wanted to leave, but they've always left. And in 2020, we almost broke that unbroken chain of peaceful transfers of power. But thank God we did. Was that what prompted you to write the book? I ran a project for the Partnership for Public Service, which is a wonderful nonprofit focused on creating government to be better, more efficient, and more effective. And part of governments being more effective is a successful start to, for new presidents. And so I worked on a project to create better, faster, more peaceful, and more efficient transitions of power. And I hosted a podcast where we studied every modern presidential transition, plus some of the worst transitions in history, Hoover to Roosevelt, Buchanan to Lincoln, and there was so much interest in the subject of transitions that we thought we would create a book, and we did. And fortunately, the book's been well-received and seems to be of interest. What is it about a transition that is really important for the incoming administration? The most important aspect for an incoming administration is personnel. If one were to design a transition they would never design it the way it works in the United States of America. So a new president has to put an entire new team in place quickly. There are 4,000 political positions that a new president needs to appoint. 1,250 of them need to be confirmed by the United States Senate. It's a virtually impossible task. Even after the first year, President Biden, who knows how to work in government, has more experience than any other president, has great people around him, he only had about a third of his people in place with Senate-confirmed positions. So getting the right people in place quickly is the most important task for a new president. Can you give us an idea of how transitions happen in other democracies that, that you compare the United States to? Is there, is there a, another democracy where transitions take more time? Uh, you have an opportunity to, to really get established before you take control. There's no other country that, that operates or organizes transition like the United States. Take the UK. In the United Kingdom, a large country, vibrant democracy, a new prime minister is elected, 
and the next day they're in. Or in the case of Elizabeth Truss, who just became the prime minister, the party voted for a new leadership and she was in quickly. When a new leader in the UK comes in, there's very little turnover at the top of the government. There's new ministers and maybe the ministers have one or two staff people. It's nothing like in the United States where you have cabinet officers, sub-cabinet officers, assistant secretaries, deputy assistant secretaries. You have multiple layers of the entire government leave. At a corporation, it would be akin to the CEO, the chief operating officer, all the vice presidents, all the senior vice presidents, and all the directors leaving at the same time. So when a new CEO came in, he or she would need to appoint an entire new leadership team. And so it's the way the government was organized. The government's got bigger and more complicated, and the task of creating an effective transition for a new president has become much more complicated, even in the best of times. Well, you you brought up the UK and Liz Truss. I just happened to be watching the BBC. And even domestically, there, there was criticism about the way that happened because, you know, of course, it is a democracy, but, you know, her ascension to the job, it was through a vote that didn't include the entire nation. I mean, it was a, a party vote. Correct. And our country doesn't operate that way. The, the entire population votes for a president. Of course, we have the Electoral College, which has its supporters and critics. The critical thing in the United States is that this transition period, which is typically 75, 76, 77 days, is a time of great vulnerability for our country. For example, when President Bush was leaving office and President Obama was coming into office, the day before Obama's inauguration, the intelligence agencies in the United States received credible threats that there was going to be a terrorist attack on the mall during Obama's swearing in. Why is this so important? Well, obviously, any terrorist attack is serious business on any day. But here you have, at the stroke of the clock at noon, one president's out, their entire team is out, and a new president is in. And that's a moment of change. It's a moment of vulnerability. And our adversaries know this. And over and over again, we've faced threats during our transition. Let me give you one other example. President Bush came into office in the year 2000. You recall we had Bush v. Gore, where one state, 537 votes, determined the outcome of the election. So his transition was shortened because there was a litigation, which the Supreme Court ultimately determined. His transition was 35 days compared to 76, 77 days. Eight months later, 9-11 happened. And when the 9-11 Commission completed its autopsy of what happened on that terrible day in American history, one of the things they found was that the shortened transition impeded President Bush's ability to get his national security team in place. And the fact that he didn't have his whole national security team in place undermined national security readiness. So that's why this is literally a matter of life and death for Americans for transitions to go smoothly and peacefully. What do you think is the most important lesson that you want readers to get from your book? that the peaceful transition of power is a bedrock of our democracy. One president handing off the reins to another 
has to be smooth, efficient, and peaceful. The incoming president needs to start planning very, very early in the spring of the election year or even before. And the outgoing president needs to have his or her team cooperate with the incoming. The gold standard of transitions was Bush to Obama, which occurred during two wars and a financial crisis. And the collaboration between outgoing President Bush and incoming President Obama and their teams allowed the country to recover faster, better, and more robustly from the financial crisis. That compared to the transition during Hoover to Roosevelt in 1932 and 1933, when Hoover refused to cooperate with Roosevelt, and that deepened the Great Depression, lengthened it, and made it worse for the American people. Do you think this past transition, and of course January 6th, has damaged irreparably damaged transitions going forward for decades to come. What do you think? No, I think it's an aberration. Historically, transitions have been bipartisan or nonpartisan affairs. That, as Ken Burns said, presidents have not wanted to leave, but they've left. And there has been good cooperation with the outgoing and the incoming in most cases. Outside of the Civil War, when seven states seceded during the period between Lincoln's election and his inauguration, and outside of the Great Depression, when the wheels came off during the Hoover to Roosevelt transition, this was the worst transition in history. It's an aberration, and I'm confident we'll get back to normal times going forward. There is a risk if President Trump is elected that we have another poor transition. Um, that's the biggest risk I see. Yeah, let's just hope that the next transition is peaceful. And of course, the book is The Peaceful Transfer of Power, an oral history of America's presidential transitions. David Marchick, thank you. Thank you for having me. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. Don't forget to check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. 
Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting May 1st.